This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. It's Thanksgiving week, and all across America, kitchens are full of delicious smells. Ovens are preheating. Maybe football's on TV, or the Macy's Parade. Family and friends are arriving at the front door, and the dogs bark every time somebody rings the doorbell. But so be it. There are hugs. There's joy. And we gather. We squeeze in around the table, make space for the extra friends who showed up, and we're glad they're here. It's Thanksgiving, after all. It's a cozy vision. It's beautiful, really. And I hope you experience something like it this week. But across Virginia, and across much of America, there is one big problem with this cozy vision. Affording a home has gotten harder. This year, the average price of a single-family home in Virginia crossed the $400,000 mark. In many places, the median home far outpaces what a median income can afford. As people stare down skyrocketing prices, or skyrocketing mortgage rates, many folks begrudgingly accept that home ownership simply won't be in their future. Home ownership was the American dream of the 20th century. And since the 1950s, owning a home has been the key to America's middle class. It's how families built wealth and passed on middle-class living to their kids. Of course, that vision hid reality. Zoning and exclusionary housing policies systematically shut out people of color from home ownership. But nonetheless, owning a home, particularly a single-family home, was and still is a fundamental part of American mythology. There are calls to overhaul this version of home ownership. After all, maybe our ideas of success and stability shouldn't have to center around one-acre suburban lots. Maybe we can shift our vision of home ownership. There are some places in Virginia trying to do just that. They're working to lower housing prices and make that dream of home ownership a little more reachable. There's no silver bullet to fix the problem. It's not just a matter of building more housing. That is but one arrow in a quiver full of policies that could make housing more affordable. One such arrow is community land trusts, or CLTs, Community land trusts began during the civil rights era, grounded in a philosophy of racial justice and black empowerment. CLTs are nonprofits that acquire properties on behalf of a community. Buyers can buy in at lower than market prices and then build wealth and equity. In today's show, we talk with Erica Sims. She's the CEO of the Maggie Walker CLT in the Richmond area. But before that, we talk with Wyatt Gordon. He's a reporter covering housing, transportation, and land use at Virginia Mercury. He explains the missing middle, which is to say homes like duplexes and quadplexes, that fall between single-family homes and giant apartment buildings. Wyatt Gordon talked with Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner about how missing middle housing reframes our current ideas of home ownership. I was at the Virginia Governor's Housing Conference hosted in Arlington this year. And as part of that, we went on a tour of workforce housing projects being built. And on the tour, they were really happy about some affordable units that they were bringing onto the market. And these townhomes were starting at the price of $670,000. So housing in Northern Virginia especially is really expensive, but housing across the entire Commonwealth has been getting ever more pricey. What housing looks like in Arlington now, you have this interesting dichotomy because on the one hand, 
75% of people who live in Arlington are renters. On the other hand, 75% of all land in Arlington is zoned for single family detached housing only. So you have this pretty perfect paradox where the vast majority of residents don't call single family detached homes home, but that's what Arlington as a locality through its zoning and land use regulations is choosing to prioritize for the vast majority of land. Since missing middle is a possible solution that Arlington is considering since it's in the final phase of its missing middle housing study. Just for people who don't know, like, what is the name referring to? Like, what middle is missing in this idea? So missing middle refers to the idea of housing that is not single family detached, but is also not multi-story, multi-family homes. So right now we're pretty much only building at the extremes of what type of housing can exist. So you see single family homes almost everywhere gobbling up the vast majority of land. And then in those very few places where multifamily units are allowed, because developers have such a small fraction of the land that they can actually build multifamily on, Arlington has actually one of the higher rates in the state at 25% of land available for multifamily. So when developers have a very, very small amount of land to build multifamily housing on, and we have vast demands for these types of units, the incentive is to build as many units as possible on the parcels that exist. So you get these really large towering buildings of 200 plus units. And what Missing Middle is, is this concept of going back to housing as it used to be. We used to have a lot more duplexes, quadplexes, small apartment buildings of six to eight units. Most families who've been here and had the privilege of home ownership long enough can go back far enough and find a story where their family built a duplex maybe in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and they rented out one half of the building to subsidize living in the other half. This is before land use laws and zoning existed. All of our current zoning regime kind of blew up in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling that you couldn't explicitly ban certain races of people from neighborhoods. So local officials had to scramble and find a way to exclude lower income, mostly black people, and came up with the idea of single family zoning and detached homes. Even though when we go to some of our city's most successful neighborhoods, thinking of Ghent and Norfolk, the fan here in Richmond, Old Town Alexandria, what we see is this very seamless blending of single family homes with apartments, with duplexes, and that kind of natural ability for us to have different types of housing at different price points, all within proximity to one another. That's really interesting. I feel like that also ties into something that feels like a, I don't know, a big draw or something rather attractive about this proposal is like that vision of community that it kind of encompasses of like these diverse areas with homes for seniors, as well as young adults, as well as for families and big emphasis on green spaces and really large emphasis on porches, like as opposed to, you know, apartment buildings where you enter lobbies and it's very mm -hmm. detached from the outside. You yeah, I mean, I think a lot of ways we have a social isolation problem, and it's pretty obvious how we've done that. We've spent since the 50s really kind of atomizing communities and segregating people into different spaces, not just based on race, but based on age. You know, we used to have pretty vibrant households with lots of people living in them, and households would be stacked on top of one another. And kind of the vision of the 50s is 
every household in its own little box, driving its own little box between boxes to do these little tasks. So what you've ultimately created is a world in which people just don't naturally bump into each other anymore. You don't see neighbors out on your porch because you live in a suburb with one acre lots. You don't see neighbors walking to the grocery store because there aren't sidewalks in your suburb anymore. And I think now that we've had a few generations growing up in this type of suburban isolation that has really been idealized, we've seen that kind of jaded perspective where growing up in a suburb wasn't really all it was cracked up to be because you couldn't bike to school, you couldn't meet up with friends on your own, you had to sit in your home, play on your computer, play on your cell phone, because otherwise you had to ask your parents to drive you to every single thing that you needed to do. So we've really artificially built this disconnected world and then asked ourselves, why are kids not going out to play anymore? But there's no safe places for kids to play. We've really kind of created the isolation that we're now struggling with. Wow. Yeah. No, that's that's really fascinating. I feel like you touched a little bit on this already, but obviously these shifts in housing are a natural evolution. It's tied to these policies that local governments chose to enact specifically related to zoning. So I was curious if you could go a little bit more in detail about what sort of restrictive zoning regulations in the past several decades kind of tilted those scales towards single family detached housing. There are so many layers of zoning and regulations. It's really helpful to think of it as an onion. So everything from minimum lot sizes to mandatory setbacks to parking requirements. We've really spent 80 years tipping the scale in favor of the most expensive form of housing possible. And now here we are after almost a century of this policy framework and we're asking ourselves why people can't afford homes, but it's simply because we've set up a world in which it's increasingly prohibitive for people to be able to afford to own something. Mm. And so currently you said there's 25% in Arlington, about 25% is zoned for this sort of housing. Do you know what percentage missing middle advocates would like to increase that to? Like what zoning changes are they calling for right now? I think the goal of most advocates of better urban fabrics and more housing is to move away from the idea that we have any neighborhoods that are zoned exclusively for single family. And I think a locality that may surprise you that is leading on this issue is actually Norfolk and Hampton Roads. They released last summer a missing middle pattern book. And basically what the city has been doing has been going neighborhood by neighborhood and transitioning away from zoning that explicitly only allows single family detached and recategorizing that as residential zoning. And then within all residential areas, these types of missing middle housing would also be allowed because the goal of missing middle housing, the power of the concept is really that it allows density, but at a house scale. So you can look at a home that might appear to be single family, and then you notice that it has two doors on the front or maybe a side entrance up to the top. So it's a way to defuse people's claims that greater density will destroy neighborhood character by preserving the optical aesthetic appearance of a single family neighborhood, but also allowing 
that housing to flex as we need it to. One thing I also find interesting is how missing middle, of course, is not explicitly about affordable housing. It's more about like housing structure. So I was curious what about it is actually like incentivizing developers to either like build more missing middle housing at lower prices when it can be pretty profitable to just continue making very expensive single family houses or apartment buildings. How will it actually contribute to lowering housing prices or is that not necessarily the point? So the advantage of missing middle is that it allows you to put more housing units on the same amount of land. So take a lot in Arlington, for example, maybe that house as a single family house would have gone for $1 million. And that's probably a low estimate. If you're able to split that up and build a quadplex there instead, maybe those units go for $250,000. So it's not necessarily that the parcel itself is any cheaper, but the individual chunks of housing that are then available for sale are more accessible to people because it's just a fact that for 4,000 square feet, you're going to pay more than if you pay for 1,000 square feet. So the goal of missing middle isn't explicitly to create affordable housing, but we know that all missing middle housing is more affordable than the single family detached alternative that will exist in its place if missing middle is banned from being built on those types of lots. I guess one of my final questions was going to be, so now that Arlington is in its third phase of its missing middle study, what do you expect Arlington to do? And do you feel like it will bring significant changes to the housing market in Arlington right now? I think Arlington is just the tip of the spear on a trend that's happening across the Commonwealth. And that's the fact that home prices are out of control. People always act like affordable housing is a really difficult thing to solve. But at the base of the housing market, it's a market. And the problem is that we're not producing enough supply to meet demand. On the one hand, it's very promising to see a broad coalition forming to fix the housing market and to try and lower prices for everyone. But on the other hand, it's a pretty terrible sign of how bad that we've let this get by not allowing more types of housing to be built and focusing all of our efforts only on building single family housing, which is the single most expensive form of housing you can build. Yeah. Yep. Well, Thank you so much for speaking with us. I know it's such a complex issue trying to fit it into a very short amount of time. Is there anything you, you wish to add that we didn't cover or? I don't know. I would just say like, um, I think success in the future looks different than maybe what people have seen in the past and what people in younger generations. And I think even a lot of baby boomers are realizing is that Having more space inside of their home is maybe not as valuable as having a smaller home located close to a lot of wonderful things, whether they're parks or shops or other amenities. So I think people want to have a prosperous future, but maybe prosperity just looks different going forward. And the idea that we should try and socially engineer everyone into a single family home is really not reflective of what people want. So it's not that everyone should 
move out of a single family home and into missing middle or other types of multifamily. It's that we shouldn't have restrictions on allowing people to build that type of housing for themselves where they want and where it makes sense. Wyatt Gordon is a reporter at Virginia Mercury. Stay with us for a short break. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. If you've ever had a question about state politics, let us know. Maybe we'll do a show about it. Hey, shoot us an email over at bolddominion at virginia.edu. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe, and leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Welcome back. In the first half of today's show, we talked about some ways to increase the inventory of housing in Virginia, which could bring the price down some. In the second half, we're talking about other creative ways to lower housing costs. And our guest is Erica Sims. She's the CEO of the Maggie Walker Community Land Trust in Richmond. She talked with Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner about the roots of community land trusts and the process of creating permanently affordable housing. In the Deep South in Georgia, there were Black farmers and SNCC activists focused on civil rights, focused on the rights of Black farmers in the Deep South, who were looking for models of collective agricultural ownership as an antidote to sharecropping and other exploitative agricultural land ownership structures, and also to collective ownership around housing and affordability around housing. And they actually looked at some models and traveled to kibbutzes in Israel as some of their formative thinking around this arose. And the original community land trust that a lot of us like to point to as our origin is a land trust called New Communities, Inc., which was created in Georgia by the Sherrods. And actually, Charles Sherrod just recently passed away, and there's a really great obituary about him in the New York Times, really describing all of his contributions to the movement. So the first CLT in Virginia was the Thomas Jefferson CLT, correct? And that was- That's right, in Charlottesville. Mm, Yeah, in 2008. Maggie Walker CLT began in 2016, correct? Yep. So I'm curious, who was Maggie Walker and why did you name it after her? Yeah, so community land trusts have come relatively late to Virginia. They've been active around the country, in particular in the Northeast, the Vermont, New Hampshire area has a lot of community land trusts. Out West, they have a lot. But in Virginia, they really only started in the mid 2000s. And in the Richmond area in 2012, 2014, coming out of the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of community development focused organizations and individuals came together with a concern around gentrification, that the work that those organizations were doing to improve communities and and in particular create affordable housing was actually counterproductive in a way because it was creating the environment for gentrification. And so 
they wanted to create a community land trust in Richmond and they were very inspired and wanted to live into that work by naming themselves after one of the most prominent Richmonders, Maggie Lena Walker, who was the first African-American female to head a bank, to found and operate a bank. And she really was a person who believed in Black wealth building and Black empowerment and made tremendous contributions to thriving Black communities in Richmond. And so our community land trust really has a focus of racial equity. So our goal is not just to create affordable housing, but to reduce the racial wealth gap and to really be able to create housing opportunities in particular for people who have been historically excluded from homeownership opportunities. You touched on this already a little bit, but I was curious if you could dive more deeper into like, why did the Richmond area need a CLT and why that moment in time? Yeah, so um, I think the neighborhood of Church Hill in Richmond is really a key part of why the land trust was created. So Church Hill in the 90s and early 2000s was really declining. The housing stock was in significant decline. The property values were in significant decline. It was a historically Black community, and they were seeing a lot of disinvestment and the city and nonprofits in the area wanted to focus on it for reinvestment. And they were very successful at that. But the timing was such that these nonprofit investments into a neighborhood were right around the time that the private market was also looking to invest in the neighborhood. And so very quickly, post 2008, this neighborhood rapidly became unaffordable and it shifted demographically in terms of race too. And so people who had lived there for many decades who had been committed to this neighborhood, even through its period of disinvestment, were now seeing that their neighborhood was changing, people like their family were not able to afford to live there anymore and there was gentrification happening and so that really was the key thinking behind wanting to create a community land trust because what a community land trust would do is if we could own homes in church hill for example they would be permanently affordable and so when that home gets sold to the next homeowner, it won't go to the top of the market, the most expensive home on that block. It will be again, affordable to someone for our program earning under 80% of the area median income, which is around 70 or $80,000, depending on the size of your family. And each year, every time that home gets sold, well, if it gets sold every 10 years, whenever it gets resold, it will still be affordable to a family earning that income, which means that the neighborhood will not be gentrified, at least in those homes that the community land trust owns. Yeah, that's kind of phases nicely into, I wanted to transition into focusing on like how CLTs, like the nuts and bolts of how they work. And so how does the Maggie Walker land trust acquire land? It's a wide variety. So we do acquire properties on the private market. We raise funds to purchase properties for development as a subdivision or a home to renovate all those different ways any developer would acquire properties. So we do that. We also accept property donations. And then the third and most 
common way we've received properties is from the local jurisdictions, whether that's through the land bank or just as a donation from either the county or the city. We've received a lot of properties through the tax foreclosure process in the city of Richmond. For example, we received a property in Chesterfield County. They had decommissioned a school and they had just a large vacant site with a old school on it and they transferred that entire property to us to develop. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. And so when you're purchasing these properties, where does the funding come from for Maggie Walker? We receive a lot of private philanthropies. We also receive government funds from all of the jurisdictions in which we work. So we do a lot of fundraising because when we build a home, usually the home's value nowadays close to $400,000, but we sell it instead. Our average home price is around $170,000, but the cost to build that home is still the same as that $400,000 home, which these days is around two hundred and thirty to $250,000. And so every time we spend 250,000, but only make 170,000, we need funds to cover that gap because we're focused on what can people in this neighborhood afford for a home? We don't care what the value of the home is. We don't care what the cost to construct the home is. We care about what can people in this neighborhood, according to what incomes in this neighborhood are, what can they afford in a home? That's what we want to build here. And so it's really a radical reimagining of what how you should price a home. Mm, yeah, such a large central part of this is the fact that not only is it affordable now, it is going to be permanently affordable in the future. Can you break down what part of the lease contract or the resale process helps encourage it to be permanently affordable? Yes, yeah, so that's the legal structure that is like our underpinning. It's called a ground lease. And that structure says to the person who buys a home from us for let's say $170,000, but that home is valued on that day that they purchase it at 400,000. And what we don't want to have happen is that that person turns around and sells it for $400,000. We want that person that buys the home to be able to build wealth. That is the goal here is to see families who have been excluded from wealth building opportunities now able to be included in them. But we want to figure out a way that they can build wealth off of this affordable home, but leave wealth in the home for the next person that buys it. And so that ground lease document describes a formula that does that. And that formula says, when you go to sell this home, we aren't going to get an appraisal and figure out what the home is worth on the open market. That's not how we're going to define how much you get to make off of this home. The way we're going to define how much you get to make off of this home is what can someone who earned just as much as you did back in the day, escalated for inflation and the time that has transpired, but what can you, the version of you today, afford in this home? That is going to be the sales price that you can realize for the home. And you will make money off of that. We've had many home buyers sell their homes and make money off of that and then go on to buy a fee simple home. But that home is then still affordable for the next person. And that cycle happens again and again and again. I'm curious, how many houses does the Maggie Walker CLT own in the Richmond area? Do you know off the top of your head? Yes, we should close on our 75th home by the end of this year. 
and we have another 150 in the pipeline. And so we're, we're rapidly growing. The average size for a CLT around the country is around 10 units. So they're generally very small, very kind of grassroots. Does the supply of the housing that you guys have now like meet the demand of people looking for CLT housing in Richmond? No, we have a strong wait list. We generally have multiple offers for every home that we sell. I don't believe that we will really ever meet the need for this housing type because this just doesn't exist any longer in our housing market. Starter homes, homes under $300,000, let alone homes under $200,000 don't exist. And, and these are very high quality homes. These don't exist in our market. And so I don't really feel that we can even attempt to meet that need. But what I wanna see us do is continue to grow in a significant way so that we are really a answer in the Richmond region's housing market so that if someone needs this kind of housing, there is a sufficient pool of it available upon resale, upon new construction, that this can be made available to as many people as can can make use of it. Yeah, definitely. I only have like one more question and maybe it's a little broad and expansive, but this is such a really cool radical model for increasing affordable housing. But like you were saying, it's it's constantly hindered by being in such a limited capacity. Do you think it's possible to make this more widespread? Is it possible to like garner that political will to get this on a larger scale in Virginia? I do think that it is possible for this to scale dramatically. There are definitely federal funding and policy solutions that are on the table but have not been implemented. There is um, a tax credit program that has been proposed for a long time at the federal level that would be a tax credit on your federal income taxes that would be a significant enough size to promote affordable home ownership. And so if that type of program was approved, it would allow investors to invest in and receive that tax credit for funding programs like ours. And then the other is just that the state affordable housing trust fund has begun to prioritize community land trust structures in their funding opportunities. And so to the extent that their funding continues to grow, that priority should see additional resources for us. I think that that's just a matter of political will. And I think that over time, community land trusts have been discussed much, much more. And I expect that to continue because our housing market is shutting out increasingly larger swaths of our population from home ownership. And so I think solutions like the land trust will continue to be seen as an antidote to that and will continue to grow in popularity. But I guess the second way I'd like to answer that question is that we are really a radical imagining, reimagining of what the real estate market can and should be. Should homes escalate in value at a rate of 20 or 30% a year to the point where average income people can no longer afford to purchase homes? Or is there a different way to think about how homes should be priced, should be valued, and should be used? And so I think that we are really 
a way of doing that that is completely outside of the current real estate market. And in that way, we would only become significant if the current real estate market was significantly changed or broken or disassembled. And so I see us as a option for that future if it were to ever come about. If the political will in this country changes to a degree that the real estate market does get disassembled, we are sitting here waiting with a wonderful model, an existing structure, and an infrastructure that can be put to use immediately to show an alternative way of housing ourselves. Erica Sims is the CEO of the Maggie Walker Community Land Trust in Richmond. Many thanks to her and Virginia Mercury reporter Wyatt Gordon for speaking with us today. My name's Nathan Moore and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our show this week was produced and edited by Alana Bittner. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.